on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody out there. You are listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Today is March 4th. We are taping this live in Studio B. My name is Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, everybody. And we have an extremely uh, special guest today joining us via phone from Sharon, Connecticut. She is the author of a number of books. She won the Pulitzer Prize for the Vietnam uh, War book, Fire in the Lake. We have her here to discuss her new book today from Simon & Schuster Publications, the Evangelicals. We are extraordinarily pleased to welcome Francis Fitzgerald to the show. Francis, are you with us? I am. Thank you so much. Thank you much. for having me. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. We, we usually uh, don't get Pulitzer Prize winners on this show, and uh, I'm, I'm extremely pleased to have it. And I would like to say at the start, uh, all of us, uh, I think, thoroughly to a person enjoyed the book, which is kind of a rarity yes. on, on the show. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we, you know, we usually don't have unanimous decisions. And I can tell you also that the gentlemen to my immediate left have a stack of post-it notes in their books indicating that they read this thing very thoroughly. Oh, yeah. Uh, so let's dive right in at the start. What, what made you choose this subject? And I, I think as a kind of a follow-up to that question, why right now? Because it seems like a very... Um, cogent book to come out during the Trump era, in an era when some of the many themes that you talk about, particularly late in the book, uh, with the Christian Coalition and Ralph Reed, and some of the things you say about the Falwell uh, family's kind of basic incuriosity, seems to be mirrored at the highest levels of our, our democracy and our government right now. So I wondered if that was on your mind when you were, uh, obviously this is a massive work, people can't see it due to the magic of radio, but this, this is around 600 pages. So this book has over. been, yeah. yeah, this book has been in the work, I'm assuming, you know, multiple years. But when this came out, did you say to yourself, well, this is really the moment for this kind of survey? Well, no, I didn't, because actually I think that, um, um, you know, the uh, Christian right, which is what the um, sort of last part of the book is, is much about, um, has been very powerful for at least since the 90s. And so um, uh, I, you know, wasn't uh, not surprised that um, they're still around and, uh, and uh, still... Um, um, uh, having influence with the president and with the Congress. Hmm. Um, actually, I began the I, I began writing about evangelicals um, for magazines, uh, mostly the New Yorker, um, in 1980. Because um, just by pure accident, I, um, I ran into uh, uh, Jerry Falwell's church in Lynchburg, Virginia. I was I was teaching there at a liberal arts college. And uh, it was right across the street. And so um, one professor said to me, well, it's a fundamentalist church. And I said, well, you know, I've never, I'm a New Yorker, right? That um, I never, to my knowledge, had met a fundamentalist before, so I had better go. And, um, and uh, it turned out that that was the year that Falwell was beginning the moral majority. So I wrote um, um, uh, a long piece about it for the, for the New Yorker. And I've been writing about evangelicals um, off and on since then, um, you know, mostly off for, for you know, um, um, a decade or so, but then, then on again um, during the um, George Bush um, period, George W. Uh, th that, that reminds me, um, in the, the way the book read for me was, was interesting. Um, there's an authorial entrance about 260 some pages into the book, and it, and it caught me kind of off guard. You, you, you use the first person, 
Um, and, and that's when I realized um, that you had had direct experience with, with Falwell. Um, and it, it just, it changed the way I read the book a little bit. And, and um, I r appreciated that um, you didn't intrude too much. There, there are only a few points where you use the first person in, in your personal experience. Um, but you did a really nice job of maintaining an even-handed tone throughout the book and, and just doing really in-depth, hardcore research. Was, was maintaining that tone um, difficult for you? Oh, well, thank you for the compliment. But, but actually, I mean, that's what I um, try to do with um, my journalism in general. Um, but with people I disagree with in particular, because, um, um, I mean, the point of writing about... Um, the Christian right, um, and perhaps evangelicals generally, is that is that um, um, uh, is is not to sort of bewail their influence or whatever. I mean, you know, everybody does that, but to try and understand um, uh, um, how they think and what what um, they're about, um, how great their power is or isn't, and that you know everything about them. But um, so so a neutral tone is just, you know, is a journalistic tone. That was, that's impressive, and, you know, we don't see a lot of that, especially when you don't agree with the subject matter. And Francis, I wanted to uh, have you tell our listeners a little bit about the first and second awakenings that you talk about early in the book. This was kind of um, the, be well, not kind of, it is the beginning of, you know, the, the white evangelical movement, and, you know, it started out with, with revivals. Um, can you give us a little background history on that, just for our readers that haven't read the book yet, just to get, so we can get a little um, backbone? Uh, underpinnings? Yeah. Sure. And, I mean, let me say, to, to start with, that the reason it's there and the reason that all that history is there, 19th century history, is that, that I don't think that you can really understand um, uh, modern evangelicals, um, right wing or not, without knowing that history. Um the the uh, first the, the evangelicals um, um, started, if you will, in Europe and the and the United States uh, during um, two great waves of revivals. Um, one um, uh, in um, the late eighteenth um, uh, century, and the other one in the early nineteenth century. And uh, in the United States, they were known as the first and second Great Awakenings. Uh, the first one um, began in, in the church of Jonathan Edwards, um, our great theologian. Um, and um, it uh, was carried across the country by an English um, um, uh, revivalist who was an Anglican, actually, um, uh, called George Whitfield. And um, he preached outdoors. He was one of the few people who did um, at the time, and, and Benjamin Franklin um, used to go around and see how far his voice would reach um, in Philadelphia. But um, he, he, um, um, both he, these, these revivals, um, uh, both were the cause and the effect of, of um, a real social change in the United States. Um, in, uh, in New England, um, the Puritan communities had, had broken up. People were moving um, west. Uh, there was a good deal of inequality of wealth um, because of, you know, growing industry and so forth. Um, so uh, the Puritan communities, which were very um, uh, 
strict and hierarchical and held together um, by um, by uh, the magistrates um, were essentially breaking apart. And and um, um, what evangelical meant here was was um, the, an emphasis on on the individual, on the, an individual salvation as opposed to. Um, a sort of reattachment to the community, which the previous revivals had really been about. But this one is saying, you know, um, you, 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 you individually can be born again in Christ and um, have a new life and uh, be uh, cleared of your past sins. And um, this was a huge relief to people at the time. Um, and at the same time, it was quite disrupt- disruptive because... Um, it challenged the established churches, um, including, you know, Edwards' own church. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, because uh, 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 this was saying that the individual was powerful and not the church per se. Um, and uh, it went on, and I, I think probably had something to do with the American Revolution, too. Not directly, but certainly indirectly because of this um, um, spirit of... Uh, of liberation and um, uh, of, of um, uh, freedom from, um, from, from the established authorities. We actually have a reading uh, from this uh, period, from, from Francis Fitzgerald's book, about this, and about a particular revivalist, Charles Finney, and his work in upstate New York, which is a particular uh, interest to me being a somewhat upstate New York kid myself. Let's hear that, and then we're going to get back to conversation with uh, Francis. Let me just say that that's the second great awakening. That is, it's yes. That, after, quite long after the revolution. Correct, quite long after, but this is the second one, and there's some interesting stuff in here. Once we listen to this, we're going to dive back into this, because for me, this is a passage that that really kind of captures the crux of of some of what uh, Francis is writing about because um, you'll hear it and then then let's we'll come back to discuss it you're listening to i94 built on the falls of the Genesee just south of Lake Ontario Rochester had until 1823 been no more than a small market town but with the arrival of the Erie Canal linking the region with New York City The Genesee Valley became almost overnight one of the greatest grain-growing regions in the world, and Rochester the first inland boomtown. Rochester milled and exported Genesee wheat and became a center of manufacturing, producing everything from guns to furniture. The established merchants and manufacturers had run their shops as extensions of their own patriarchal households, but by 1830 their small businesses had become commercial operations with a workforce of unattached young men who lived in boarding houses and drank, caroused, and brawled as they pleased. Alarmed by the disorder among their workers, the manufacturers pressed for temperance legislation, but with the extension of the franchise to men without property, the city fathers no longer controlled the town government. At the same time, conflicts over issues such as whether Sabbath observance should extend to prohibiting the Sunday mail rent the churches, setting clergymen against each other and wealthy laymen against their own ministers. To many, it seemed that the town had become ungovernable. At the invitation of local ministers, Finney arrived in September 1830, and for the next six months he preached at a Presbyterian church almost every night and three times on Sunday. On weekdays, he and other ministers held prayer meetings while his wife Lydia and other evangelical women counseled families and prayed with women in their homes. According to Johnson, the revival began among church members and spread to their family members and friends. 
People of all denominations came to hear Finney, and soon the church services were so crowded that people prayed out in the snow. By the spring, the churches had gathered in hundreds of converts, 600 for the three Presbyterian churches alone, and sympathetic revivals were breaking out across New York and New England. A temperance crusade led by Finney's protege, Theodore Weld, had merchants smashing their barrels of whiskey and letting thousands of gallons flow down the streets and into the Erie Canal. Sectarian divisions were forgotten, as were the old conflicts. Lawyers, merchants, manufacturers, master craftsmen, and their wives were welded into an evangelical community that subsequently converted most of the working men of the town. Then, as Ryan tells us, in the wake of such revivals, men and women formed voluntary associations to discourage vice, to care for the poor, and to help women bring up their children. Temperance was largely observed, and 18th century patriarchal households turned into 19th century middle-class homes. According to Johnson, the transformation owed much to Finney's quote-unquote new measures. The revival was quieter than those in Rome and Utica, but as always with Finney, it involved emotional group prayer. In church services and daytime meetings, ministers prayed out loud, others joined in, and often people broke into tears, confessed their sins, and blessed the Lord. Instituting one new measure, Finney put those on the verge of conversion on an anxious bench in front of the church where the whole congregation could see them when they felt the Spirit and stepped forward. Prayer and conversion thus became public, intensely social events, where men and women expressed their deepest feelings before a crowd. After people had humbly asked for mercy and watched many others do the same, they found a new sense of trust in one another. Family ties were strengthened, enemies made up, and strangers found a sense of community. And that was a reading from the Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald, who, of course, joins us live via phone. Francis, that passage uh, is very interesting to me because it seems to indicate the the power of the evangelical movement to affect societal change in a positive fashion. Uh, and it seems that uh, the town fathers in Rochester, you know, obviously welcomed Finney and his reformation in seeing it as a way to clean up the town from some very undesirable things. This strikes me in sharp contrast to some events later on. Uh, was there a time when the evangelical movement shifted from this obviously um, acquisitive phase in, in gaining followers and power, but but shifted away from from what we think of as a kind of uh, use for social good into a political power structure that we kind of think of the Christian right today? Well, I mean, um, I think the point is that after these two great awakenings, um, the second one went on, you know, um, here and there until practically 1850, um, virtually all Protestants, which um, actually meant virtually all Americans at that time, uh, had turned into evangelicals. So by definition, they had power. Um, and um, in, in this period, and, and partly because of Finney, um, uh, but many other preachers as well, um, they instituted all kinds of reforms um, uh, from... Um, uh, the criminal justice system um, to the sort of start of the public school system in the, in the, in the country. Um, uh, so uh, they really they they and they were the powers in the, in the Whig Party um, and uh, in the North again partly because of Finney um, they were the the mass base for the um, um, anti-slavery movement. Um, so, uh, in that sense, they held real power. Um, uh, when you go to the 20th century, 
um, you have quite another dynamic, which is because, and it happens after the um, the split um, between liberal and conservative evangelicals um, that sort of came to a head in the in the in the nineteen twenties. Um, but then um, um, it was evangelicals against each other, as it were, and uh, the liberals had sort of stopped calling themselves evangelicals. I mean, actually, everybody had for for quite a while because everybody was one, so it was sort of unnecessary. Um, you just called yourself whatever Protestant denomination you belonged to. Um, but so so um, 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 the evangelicals in the 19th century weren't always uh, reformist. Indeed, after uh, the Civil War, um, a lot of them became very, very um, uh, conservative um, politically, uh, but not so much politically as socially. Um, they didn't. They didn't um, uh, exert direct political power, but rather um, uh, they would just be on always on the side of the employee employers um, against the employees. And uh, it wasn't really until the 1880s that that um, uh, uh, a liberal group formed that were that um, um, became you know solidly pro-union. Um, and the division went on there, but the division was actually more um, uh, doctrinal and religious than it was um, uh, social and political. I mean, that's what, you know, that's how, how um, disputes were carried on, was, was um, through religious doctrine in, in that period. What, my next question is, is, we're moving forward a little bit, but in the 20s, would, would you say that the social split came... Um, after, you know, we started in our in this country talking about Darwinism and the theory of evolution, that seems to be, um, from from my reading, is when things really started to split. Um, we had, you know, one side that believed that the Bible and science were separate, and then you had another side that said that they were, you know, that God's law is law. And would that, I think, would that, would you say, I mean, you're the expert here, but that that was when the, the, the big social split started. Because when I was looking, you know, when I was, I was looking over the history, a couple of things surprised me. And, and one of them was that um, evangelicals were not always so vehemently um, pro-life, um, which we learned about. And then another thing that I, that really surprised me, too, is that, you know, Eisenhower was one of the first presidents to really, he, he started the prayer breakfast with Congress and, oh, yeah, and, and talking about, um, you know, bringing religious, re- religion. And I mean, I know there was always religion in the White House, but, you know, we always think of Reagan as kind of, well, Jimmy Carter, the first evangelical, and then Reagan, and then... Well, know, Eisenhower didn't consider himself evangelical. No, but he brought, right. you know, he started... He, he par- considered it important to the health of the nation. Yeah. yeah. Any religion. <laughs> yeah, so I just asked you a million questions, but let's... <laughs> let's, let's yes, you did. I just wondered where to begin. Let's start with Darwinism. Oh yeah. Well, um, uh, uh, Darwinism did it, um, came as a major shock to um, all you know, to to England as well as the United States, and uh, um, um, because it sort of decentered the the notion of um, a, a God and man um, to to the the creation in general, and um, the reactions to it were were several. I mean. Um, uh, those people who accepted it, some of them were um, deliberately 
um, a sort of atheist, and others, although probably few of them, most of them were theists. Um, that is to say, they they believed that uh, that um, um, God started the whole thing off somewhere, some at some point, and um, that a- evolution was um, um, uh, a part of God's plan. Um, uh, then um, there were there were others who simply rejected um, uh, the notion of evolution, um, and, and others that rejected merely the notion of human evolution. Um, so it you know the, the people were all over the lot, but but um, um, I think sort of um, Darwinianism sort of stood for um, a, a number of changes in in. Um, in the sciences and in the social sciences that were going on at the time, um, it was in the United States. It was it came kind of after it did in Europe, um, but in, you know the the big fights went on in the 1880s, and um, uh, the, you know um, geology, um, philology, uh, linguistics, all kinds of things were. Um, uh, being used in Europe, um, uh, not not just you know on their own rights, but but also to investigate the Bible, and um, to uh, it was called the higher bi- biblical criticism to find out um, um, uh, when various books were written um, and who by, if possible, um, and what other literature um, was um, uh, around at the time and. Um, a, a lot of connections made between biblical literature and and um, that of, of of the pagans of the of the of the period or previously. Um, so uh, a lot was sort of being destabilized, um, um, and uh, this caused um, uh, conservatives to sort of cling uh, much more closely to the to the notion of a of um, an error-free Bible, uh, a Bible in which every word was should be taken as, as the whole truth. That's interesting because it seems like some of the... Um... Sorry, I bl- um, lost you. Oh, can you hear us there, Francis? Yeah, I can. I can. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Francis, some of the things that it seems that were being battled about in the 1800s seem to be still being fought today in a weird way. I mean, you have a, a group of churches here in, in Chicago who I would, would say are, are more concerned with um, worldly goals such as social justice and, and education and caring for the community. And the, the evangelical churches, which seem to um, not not necessarily do that. Uh, there's a distinct between kind of a, a mainline church and the evangelical churches for whom, you know, the church is, is what it is and, and that's it. And uh, my wife actually happens to be a, a preacher's daughter from a Calvinist family in, in Michigan. Um, and her experience, is, as related to me, is, has been always very interesting because she talks about that religion as being one of an emotional experience and, and uh, not necessarily an, uh, an argument Whereas, you know, we, we think of things and we have dialogues about religion, and there's, these are dialogues that you're discussing. The evangelical churches seem to instead have fixated on a single answer to, to any question, and there's no real uh, exploration beyond that. Is that kind of a correct reading of what we're talking about here? I think evangelicals are very various, and so this is almost nothing you can say about them. Um, you know, in a flat statement, it's going mm-hmm. to be true of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly not 
this. Um, um, evangelicals come in many guises, and there, there are plenty of progressive ones. I mean, progressive in um, both in the sense that, that they don't read the Bible literally, um, uh, that they they read it much as mainline um, um, the Protestants do, um, uh, but with with different emphases, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but and they also there are also some that that um, really do engage in in social work of various kinds and um, you know in helping the homeless of the city of of uh, helping immigrants um, directly. Um, uh, I'm not I'm um, not familiar with them in, in Chicago, but uh, um, I, I'm, by the way, w- we are talking essentially about white churches. Correct, yeah. Black churches, uh, black evangelical churches, um, um, are are always different. Right, and that's something that we'd like to get to in the second half of the show. Actually, that that leads to a question. But please do go on. Yeah, well, um, that that's about what I want to say. Mm-hmm. That you know that that um, um, the experience of one evangelical growing up is just not the experience of another one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm not a Christian. I wasn't raised Christian, um, but I I had and have a lot of Christian friends and. One thing I would always ask, well, it, it was a weird experience hearing about all these different denominations and different churches that were around, especially when I was really young. And, and I would always ask what the difference was, you know, whether it was Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever. And one of the things I like about this book is that it traces uh, the roots of some of those divisions, you know, uh, mainly in, in this book, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, and, and Baptist. And there are a few references in the book to the Westminster Confession. Can you talk about that event in history, when it happened, and and what happened? Well, it's a 17th century confession, um, uh, which is essentially English and Scotch, and uh, um, it um, came to this country with with the Presbyterian Church, and uh, um, it's something that... um, um, uh, was um, to to, uh, to read descriptions of it, and I've never read read the whole thing myself. Um, uh, had you know, very complicated um, uh, teachings and um, um, complicated practices. So, but um, uh, it, it was not. Um, um, uh, it did not. Uh, uh, it's it said that the Bible was infallible. In matters of faith, essentially, and practice, and so on, but it never—it didn't say it was infallible in matters of uh, science or uh, um, uh, anything else, uh, okay. but just simply faith, faith, and the practice of of religion. So, um, in in that sense, uh, uh, relatively liberal um, uh, Presbyterians could still adhere to it. Hmm. With that, we need to go take a short break. We're going to play some messages from the folks that uh, make the station possible. And then when we come out, we're going to hear another segment right after the break from the Evangelicals. You are listening, of course, to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. This is I-94, and we're today in conversation with the author, Francis Fitzgerald. We'll be right back.
To ask a Thomas Road member, what brought you to Lynchburg, or how did you find this house, was to hear, God brought me here, or God found this house for us. Only afterward would come some mention of the family's desire for a warmer climate or the intervention of a real estate agent. I thought of it as a moonchild quality until I realized that Thomas Road people always seemed to know what God wanted, at least in retrospect. God, they would say, had answered their prayers about living in a warmer climate, but he had not given them the new house they wanted because he was teaching them a lesson they needed to learn. As for the future, they were sure that God had a plan for them, and while they sometimes couldn't say what it was, they often had leadings or intuitions cultivated in prayer. Falwell, for example, wrote that he decided to start the Thomas Road Church because after prayer he felt, quote, a growing conviction that God was pleased I had chosen to stay in Lynchburg, unquote. For Thomas Road people, nothing happened by chance or because of simple human volition. There was a purpose even behind apparent accidents, and those who prayed and studied their Bible could potentially figure it out. In a 1987 study of a northern fundamentalist church, Ammerman wrote that the church provided believers with, quote, an orderly, well-mapped territory in the midst of an uncharted, chaotic, modern wilderness, end quote. In the outside world, she wrote, the rules are subjective, imperfect, and always changing. Inside, God provides a plan that is clear, objective, and timeless. There are clear rules and understandable answers for all of life's questions. Certainly, Thomas Road people all seemed to know what God wanted for the rest of society. As outsiders soon discovered, there was no point in talking to more than one on a topic of political or social interest because there was only one right answer to every question, and any church member could give it to you as well as any of the pastors unless they happened to lack the specific information. Oh, I'm totally against the ERA, Nancy James told me during a visit I paid to her house when, for the purposes of discussion, I recited some of the pro-ERA arguments she listened seriously and apologized for being so ill-informed on the subject. I thought at the time that the arguments had made some impression on her, but later, as I was leaving, she came out after me to apologize again and to say, quote, I will find out more about the ERA. I know I'm against it. I'm just not sure exactly why, End quote. For Thomas Road people, education, in the broad sense of the word, was not a moral or intellectual quest that involved struggle or uncertainty. It was simply the process of learning the right answers. The idea that individuals should collect evidence and decide for themselves was out of the question. Once Falwell told his congregation that to read anything but the Bible and certain prescribed works of interpretation was at best a waste of time. And we're back on I-94. You're listening to Lumpen Radio here in Chicago. We are in conversation today with Frances Fitzgerald. She is the author of The Evangelicals. And you just heard a passage from midway through the book about Jerry Falwell. And we talked at the beginning of the show. Uh, Ms. Fitzgerald was out in uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee, and uh, actually Virginia. met Jerry, excuse me, Virginia, Virginia and met, uh, I always think of the bourbon before I think of the uh, the church. That's my fault. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. Uh she met him, and uh, this kind of sparked uh, a, a well, I got 40 years, I guess, uh, researching and writing about the evangelical movement culminating in this book. Um, Mike has a couple questions. Before we go any further, though, I do, as always, want to thank, first of all, International Anthem. Nick Masrell and Tamika Reed provide the backing music. And our reader, of course, every week is Shanna Van Volt, who takes whatever we can throw at her. Thank you, Shanna. Mike. So that, that reading we just heard from um, Francis's book where she had been visiting members of Falwell's Thomas Road Church in the in the 80s, I think that was. 
Francis? Yeah, it was in 1980. Mm-hmm. It, uh, that that portrayal, that scene that you painted was, I think, kind of the stereotypical image I had in my head of of an evangelical, you know, that all-encompassing stereotype that doesn't really exist or isn't isn't the whole truth. Um, and your book breaks that down very very much in depth. And a couple chapters after what we just read, there's there's a chapter titled The Thinkers of the Christian Right in it. And it gets uh, into the history of, of some of the intellectual towers, I guess you could say, behind um, some of the Christian right thinkers of today or, or yesteryear. Um, can you talk about the, the two main intellectuals you discussed in that chapter and, uh, um, and yeah, just your sure. experience? Um, one, one of them was extremely well-known um, in his time. This, this is um, Francis Schaeffer. And um, he, um, I mean, I think anybody between 50 and 70 right now would, um, evangelical, would, would know his name, whereas, you know, outsiders do, don't. Yeah, I sure um, didn't. But uh, he was, the, um, he was, uh, uh, he began as a fundamentalist, as Falwell, by the way, as a fundamentalist, and that's, that's the sort of one sort of far end of, of the evangelical world. But um, uh, he um, uh, evolved when he went to Europe and set, set up a, a house there, um, which became independent of, of his fundamentalist uh, uh, church association. And um, he started to try and evangelize um, young um, Europeans and Americans who came through. Um, and he realized that... that uh, um, they weren't attracted uh, so much to, to, to the Bible reading because they never had uh, read the Bible. They never was not in their in their ken at all. Um, the sort of first generation of of, um, of of people who were unchurched, and um, uh, so he um, um, began to study uh, European art and um, um, uh, literature and so forth, and and began to lecture on. On um, um, uh, all kinds of, uh, of subjects, from the Italian Renaissance to uh, um, to modernist movement, um, uh, and uh, you know Sartre and Camus and so on. Um, he, uh, whether he actually read any of these things yeah. is not clear. He, he yeah. did have something of an eye for for p- painting, but um, uh, um, he 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 uh, read wrote a number of books on these scores, and, um, um, and he, um, thanks to his son, um, made uh, one film, which, which is this, was sort of an answer to uh, Sir Kenneth Clark's great, great um, series called Civilization. And it, um, it was entirely from a um, sort of Calvinist point of view. Um, but... Um, uh, How should we he, then live? Is was the title. That's right, um, and um, uh, it it um, uh, he always ends somehow by being angry. <laughs> you know, the the the, the, um, the he may he may go through some appreciation of of um, um, Brunelleschi or or some Italian Renaissance figure. Um, but then, then towards the end, um, he sort of gets comes up to date again and, and gets angry about the current situation. Um, and so his, his fundamentalist um, 
period was n- never quite lost. Um, but uh, he became a lecturer in, in colleges and around the United States, and these films um, made him very famous, particularly the, I think, the second one, um, which was uh, about um, abortion. And um, uh, before that, um, evangelicals, um, th- th- this came out, what, in the early 80s, mm-hmm. um, 70, maybe 79. Um, it, before that, evangelicals were really, like other Protestants, um, uh, uh, not entirely against abortion, and they, 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 um, they, um, uh, their view was that uh, you shouldn't just um, oh, have sort of abortion on demand, but but that um, you ought to consider not just the life of the mother, but the but the um, but the mother's own um, uh, personal views. Uh, her her, um, you know, it, was this going to be a good experience for her? Um, would she be able to afford the baby? What, you know, all, all those kinds of things. Um, and um, uh, this, this film, which was done with um, a, a, a great um, a pediatrician, pedi- pe- pediatric surgeon, um, uh, who was one of the first um, evangelical sort of anti-abortion people, um, became, was um, uh, at first not... Um, uh, not even allowed at certain um, evangelical colleges, and then gradually um, sort of became more and more important. And I think um, was the major thing in turning evangelicals against abortion uh, and seeing abortion as murder. I mean that that um, sort of taking the Catholic view of of abortion. Francis, would you say that Falwell was the beginning of the? intertwine or a love affair of the Republican Party with or um, conservatives with the evangelical movement. You talk a little, well, you talk quite a bit about it, but um, there's a thing where he, uh, there's a quote in your book where he said, the free enterprise system is clearly outlined in the book of Proverbs. Um, he talked about registering people to vote, explain issues to them. You can endorse candidates right there on the church on Sunday mornings. And this seems to have bladed over, you know, into Reagan and Bush, and for some reason they skipped Obama, and then now with Trump, which still baffles me that so-called Christians would endorse someone that is so morally objectionable. Um, <laughs> but what Falwell was Falwell the one that really first started to really push that? Um, uh, yes, ti- he was. I mean, Falwell. Falwell was the first. Um, uh, he was a fundamentalist, by the way, but the first evangelical. Because fundamentalism is, is a sort of a, a subset of evangelicals, um, uh, to um, create an, a, a political organization um, that is the moral majority that went about um, registering people to vote and um, uh, telling them why they should um, um, uh, vote, and um, they didn't even have to say Republican because. You know, um, fundamentalists um, plus uh, a lot of northern northern um, evangelicals were his- historically uh, uh, Republicans. I mean, they were historically um, uh, the fundamentalists were very much to the right on um, on uh, economic uh, and military and uh, and foreign policy issues as well as everything else. And for for a long while, Falwell um, really didn't. Um, you know, highlight um, 
uh, uh, abortion and homosexuality himself. He he was all over the map conservative, and um, uh, he um, uh, he very much sort of offered himself up to Reagan and Reagan, who uh, needed um, uh, religious support because he he was he Reagan was. Um, um, in trouble with the, both the Catholics and the liberal Protestants on his um, nuclear um, buildup, um, uh, went to Falwell, and um, uh, the two became sort of politically close. And um, uh, this was not true of a lot of the other evangelicals who kind of well, um, moved away from Reagan um, for various reasons during his eight years in office. But Falwell uh, clung to Reagan, and um, even to his sort of worst foreign policy moves, like you know, um, uh, being pro-apartheid in in, in, in uh, South Africa. So um, uh, a- after that, um, um, from the mid '80s on, the the South began to turn um, uh, Republican right down to. Um, I mean, they some, they had occasionally voted for Republican presidents before, but but um, now now it was they uh, the South began to vote in um, senators and representatives and state legislatures and so forth that were Republican. Um, this was a, took a long period of time uh, coming, but but um, um, uh, Southern evangelicals who used to vote like other white Southerners. Um, uh, democratic, um, you know, for ever since the Civil War, um, uh, really were ahead of the curve in turning Republican, because um, they were probably the, you know, some of them were the most um, um, uh, conservative of all, and um, and and in particular objected to uh, uh, Johnson's um, um, civil rights bills, mm-hmm. um, and and. They they um, they were segregationists um, until a certain period when when um, they decided not to talk about it any longer. Um, and um, Falwell, uh, uh, who began a kind of segregated school church school, um, you know, invited in a couple of uh, black students. So you know, it it um, that issue sort of slightly went away, but. Um, you know, underneath it, there was, it was still there, <laughs> right? Uh, because um, it was really the the issue of uh, um, the federal government trying to uh, trying to to in- integrate um, church schools. I mean, starting with Bob Jones University, that um, uh, got um, uh, Falwell and his um, uh, brethren um, uh, upset enough to start this. Um, uh, p- political organization. Right. And this is a good place to, to jump ahead a little bit. We have a, a reading from, from further on in, in Francis's book about Ralph Reed and the Moral Majority, who did a great deal of organizing for uh, the Republicans, particularly in the South, trying to get a 50-state majority. Let's, let's hear this real quickly, and then we're going to come back and wrap it up. You're listening to I-94. We're in conversation with the author, Francis Fitzgerald. Uh. 
Unlike the moral majority, the Christian coalition did not recruit pastors but worked with lay evangelicals of different traditions and made alliances with other Christian right groups at the local level. Its core mission was, quote, to mobilize and train Christians for effective political action, end quote. In Robertson's view, in Robertson's vision, the coalition will recruit five or more activists in each of the nation's 175,000 precincts. It would start with elections for school boards, county commissions, and other local races where a small percentage of the registered voters could make the difference. It would work up from there to congressional races and the White House. Ralph Reed, who ran the operations and served as the public face of the coalition, had what was often called choir boy looks, but he was a political engineer. He had battled his way to the top of the college Republicans and attended Morton Blackwell's Leadership Institute, making friends with two important lobbyists, Grover Norquist and Jack Abramoff. After a religious experience in an upscale pub on Capitol Hill in 1983, he had founded a Christian right student organization, campaigned for Senator Jesse Helms, led anti-abortion protests at family planning clinics, and worked for Jack Kemp in 1988. Articulate and techno-savvy, he put together a sophisticated organization with a newspaper, The Christian American, a website, and a monthly television program. Under his direction, the coalition held training seminars across the country and an annual Road to Victory conference, where activists were given specific guidance on how to identify and mobilize voters and how to be a candidate. In the early years, Reed and other coalition leaders often recommended stealth tactics of the sort the Freedom Council had used. They urged their members to not attract attention and to avoid using the name of the organization in Republican circles. Reed sometimes described his voter mobilization program as a covert military operation. I want to be invisible, he told the Virginia pilot in November 1991. I do guerrilla warfare. I paint my face and travel at night. You don't know it's over until you're in a body bag. You don't know until election night. Stealth tactics dovetailed with the theme of religious persecution ubiquitous in coalition literature. Democrats, gays, feminists, the Supreme Court, and the media were attacking religion and people of faith. In one letter signed by Robertson, America was said to have become, quote, a largely anti-Christian pagan nation, and our government has become the weapon the anti-Christian forces now use against Christians and religious people, end quote. In some instances, the coalition members won local elections with stealth tactics, but the coalition soon became far too well known to conceal its activities. In the first two years, it made a noisy, well-financed attack on the National Endowment for the Arts for supporting quote-unquote obscene art and lobbied for the confirmation of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. Coalition literature stated, The Christian Coalition is not affiliated with any political party and does not endorse candidates. The coalition had applied to the IRS for a status as a tax-exempt social welfare organization, a 501c4, and claimed to operate within the statute that allowed such groups to engage in politics as long as partisan politics was not their quote-unquote primary activity. The statute was sufficiently vague to make stepping over the line from pro-family advocacy into partisan politics difficult to prove, but Robertson himself never made any secret about which party the coalition intended to work through. We want to see a majority of the Republican Party in the hands of pro-family Christians by 1996, he told reporters in 1992. Reed geared his tactics to doing just that. 
And that was an excerpt from The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald about the Christian coalition branching off the moral majority. We don't have a lot of time left, Francis, but I wonder if you could just quickly run down. One of the very interesting things to me in this passage was how uh, <clears throat> the Republican Party became a vehicle for evangelical Christians to affect political change. And you, you alluded to that just before we played the break. How much did the work of people like Ralph Reed and, and Pat Robertson do to cement this in current American politics? Uh, they were very important, um, and I think particularly Reed, in um, um, making uh, what, what had been a rather incoherent um, group uh, um, in, into a, an, an actual uh, uh, organized political block. Um, uh, it was still a movement, but it was, uh, but it was also um, highly organized um, at state and local levels. Um, uh, they weren't the only uh, Christian right organization at the time, uh, but uh, Christian coalition. But but uh, it was a it was a model for um, all, all the rest. Um, uh, so they so they, and uh, uh, as time went on, the the uh, connection between the the Christian right and the Republican Party became um, uh, stronger and stronger, but but also more and more obvious until the point where you know today no nobody uh, um, uh, uh, would question what which party they were they were for, um, but um, that was true in, uh, also in the in the period of George W. Bush's uh, presidency. Um, so. Uh, it, it, They've become, in terms of their political activities, they've become more right-wing Republicans than than um, um, Christian right people mm-hmm. these days. Um, and I think that partly explains their backing of Trump. And that's very interesting. To, to that's an interesting place to, to close on because Trump would, on the surface, seem to be something that evangelical excuse me evangelical Christians would be against. He's well, they a serial Cruz at first, right? Well, yeah, but he's a serial philanderer. He's a liar. He he's uh, possibly the most mendacious candidate we've we've ever elected a president. And you know, I, there was an interesting piece. I think it was in the New York Times uh, a couple weeks ago, suggesting that uh, maybe God has a sense of humor because he sent <laughs> Trump to the evangelicals, and Trump has actually been very. Uh, reliable for the evangelicals. He's acted on a lot of things that they have historically wanted, and, and he's done this. Um, but why why has Trump been embraced? Is it partisan politics, or is it something deeper? Well, no, it's that. I mean, it's that, they, you know, it's just, as I, as I was talking about Falwell, um, uh, these people, um, the Christian right, are right, right wing across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, they want to get certain things done. And uh, at a certain point, their, their pragmatism has overtaken um, their idealism about about the person. I mean, um, some of them are very clear uh, today that that um, they they absolutely don't care um, who the who the person is that's um, the presidential candidate as long as he he will um, uh, uh, do what they want, which is to you know get them. Um, Conservative judges, justices, um, and uh, pass a variety of uh, pieces of legislation for them. So um, uh, that's what they care about, and, and not um, who, th- who this person is so much. Although I must I must say that um, a lot of them uh, like Trump personally because they think he's a strong man, or they <laughs> did, and that um, he simply will 
would um, um, upset the apple cart of the the, the establishment, which is um, something they've never liked. Hmm. So um, it's those two things. Very interesting. Well, we have to end it on that note. Uh, we have been in conversation with Francis Fitzgerald. Francis, thank you so much. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, for Francis. Making time. Uh, Francis, if you need more information on Francis, you can go to our website. It is francisfitzgerald.net. Her new book, The Evangelicals, is out. It's in my hot little hand. It is out now from Simon and & Schuster, and I'm sure there are many, many places you can find out more information about this, including your local library. Francis, again, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank well, you. thank you for having me. Next week, we'll be back at 11 o'clock Sunday morning. We'll be talking with the author, Gary Indiana. Gary Indiana is going to be on the show, folks. It's a big spring here on 94. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the work of Francis Fitzgerald, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of The Evangelicals, out now from Simon & Schuster. This episode first aired on March 4, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.